2 Samuel chapter 9. It says, Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodebar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodebar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his feet and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and you and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba. Saul's servant and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him and you shall bring in the harvest and your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. And he was lame in both of his feet. This chapter is an illustration. It's an illustration of salvation and grace. David's treatment of Mephibosheth becomes a portrait, not only of how David deals with what was formerly an enemy, but what was also a friend. It becomes a type and a picture of how David's future famous son will treat the lost sinner, and it will be a reminder of just how gracious and generous the Savior is. Because we, like Mephibosheth, were born into a rejected family. You see, Saul's son, Jonathan, was born a prince. 
And just like Saul's son, Jonathan, was born a prince, we were born into Adam's family. We were born into an inheritance. We were born into a planet and a circumstance that turned out dramatically wrong. We were born into sin and we were born into condemnation. And Mephibosheth experienced a fall. A severe fall, so profound and so dramatic that it severely curtailed his ability to walk. And so we too have fallen and we are unable to walk in such a way that we can fully satisfy God's righteous demands. And so we walk according to the course of this world, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. And so Mephibosheth was clearly missing out on the best. And he would have perished if it weren't for David's generosity. David's graciousness. David's, what the Bible calls chesed. His loving kindness. And we would never have heard of Mephibosheth if it weren't for the gracious steps that David took to rescue the son of his friend. And I want you to note something else in this passage. David will make the first move. David acts for Jonathan's sake. He acts out of kindness. He calls Mephibosheth personally. And then he takes him into his own family. And then he speaks peace to him. And then he provides his every need. And then he protects him from judgment. Who does that sound like to you? Doesn't that sound familiar? Let's look at what grace looks like. In verse 1, it, again, it says, Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? I want you to look again carefully at the word kindness as it appears in verse 1. It's the Hebrew word chesed or chesed. If you're writing the, the, the English alliteration, it would be C-H-E-S-E-D. And the word means loving kindness. It can also be translated grace. The word incorporates so much that it's hard to truly understand the meaning of the word. I'm going to have to give you some idea. The word incorporates the idea of acceptance and love. It was the word that the ancient Hebrews used to describe the love of a mother for her children. This is undeserved love. This is unearned love. This is unrepayable love. This is a kind of a supernatural love that's hardwired into a person. Remember, David had made a promise both to Jonathan and Saul. If you're unfamiliar with 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, for those of you who have been following along, remember in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 13 and 14. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there and just be refreshed in the verse. It says, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. If it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away. This is Jonathan talking to David when he's hiding from his father. 
that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die. In ancient times, it wasn't unusual for an incoming king to kill everyone in the outgoing king's family. In our own culture, it's not unusual for one administration to kick out the old administration's support. David's love for Jonathan prompted his unthinking and immediate reply. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 13 and 14, yes. David said, yes, I will do this. So Jonathan made a pact. He made a covenant with his boyhood friend. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 16 and 17, it says, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And in verse 17, now Jonathan caused David to vow because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. In other words, this isn't a promise. It isn't a covenant that was entered into reluctantly or shamefully or or coercively. David gladly did it because of the profound affection And it says, David made the same promise to Jonathan's father. Again, you'll remember Saul in the the cave and in Gedi. We've talked a lot about it in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 20 through 22, where it says, And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. Saul is speaking to David, and Saul says to David, I know you're going to be the king, and I know that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me now by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. Verse 22. So David swore to Saul. And Saul went home. And David and his men went up to the stronghold, which I believe was Masada near the Dead Sea. But David remembered his promise. He remembered the promise that he made to Saul and he remembered the promise that he had made to Jonathan. And so when David asks the question, is there anyone who is left in the house of Saul? You'll notice something. Right from the start, he doesn't add any other qualification. He doesn't say, is there anyone who's left in the house of Saul who's cool? Who's attractive? Who's worthy? Is there anyone Worthy of my attention, worthy of my affection, worthy of my friendship. Instead, David says, is there anyone, anyone I can bless because of Jonathan? It's an unqualified acceptance. And by the way, it seems to me that the only qualification of the acceptance is that this person has to somehow share Saul's DNA as a qualifier. If you want to use that as a qualifier. Is there any qualification When Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever will 
I think that the only qualification is that you have to be born from Adam, from Noah. You know what every single human being in this auditorium has in common? You share a common paternity. Each and every one of you are direct descendants of Adam and Eve. Each and every one of you, without exception, is a direct descendant of Noah. Each and every one of you has been given a promise of redemption because you happen to be descended from Adam and Eve in the person of Jesus Christ. And in verse 2 it says, And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Or in Spanish, Para servirle. A sus órdenes. People in the Middle East and are very, very polite. And in verse 3 it says, Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show chesed, the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And remember, we've already, now we're reintroduced to this son, Mephibosheth. David found someone who might know the answer to his question. Isn't there anyone? Is there anyone who can tell me what I need to know? Ziba was a servant of Saul. And so he repeats the question in verse 3. Is there anyone with Saul's DNA coursing through his or her veins? I want you to read between the lines for just a moment. When he says, there is someone the son of Jonathan. Look what it says. Who is lame in his feet. Do you understand what's happening? Well, there is someone, your majesty. But the dude is lame. See, you're laughing because you understand. You're reading between the lines. There is someone, but it's probably not someone that you want to associate with. It's probably not someone that you can cultivate a friendship or a fellowship with. It's not someone who really is worthy of your affection or even attention. Your majesty. He doesn't fit into the palace crowd. Mephibosheth isn't what you would call one of the beautiful people. The chances are you're never going to see him on TV. He's never going to have the red carpet rolled out. They're, they're, they're never going to be one of the beautiful people. And look what it says in verse 4. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. David's answer is like one of those credit card commercials. Well, what do you do with this? And what is the cost of that? It, it's priceless. He goes, where is he? Usually if someone said, he's crippled, the first response is, how bad? <laughs> how bad is this guy? And then you hear the whole sordid detail of the life of this person. Well, how bad is it? But he doesn't say that. He just says, where is he? 
And you know why that's such an important response? Because that's the response of grace. You see, grace isn't picky. John Stott writes, Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Grace isn't picky. Grace is willing to save someone exactly like you. And that becomes part of the point. Spurgeon wrote, It is not true gold if it will not stand the fire, and it is not true grace if it will not stand or bear the affliction. This is the important part. Grace doesn't look for things that have been done to deserve grace. Grace operates apart from the person's ability to respond. You need to understand biblically that grace is one-sided. I repeat, grace is God giving himself in full acceptance to someone who doesn't deserve it, who can never earn it, and will never be able to repay. That's why grace has been properly defined as is unmerited favor. It's God's unmerited favor. One of my favorite definitions of grace is the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. A strong and a famous king stoops down to someone who represents everything that David is not. Disgraced, rejected, lame, crippled. And you may not even get the full understanding. You may look at the word, and Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's in the house of Machir, in the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Do you know what the word Lodabar means in the Hebrew language? The Hebrew word for no is low. The Hebrew word for yes is ken. The Hebrew word for no is low. So low means no. Debar means pasture or pasture land. The word means no pasture. It was a word that would be used to describe a place that was bleak. The son of Jonathan is living in the most God-forsaken part of the land. When you see Debar, you should see hood, ghetto. Do you know what the Italian people call the ghetto? The spaghetto. You need to understand this place is the place of unimaginable desolation. This is the place of poverty. This is the ancient world's version of the slums. Mephibosheth is living in some obscure, worthless, barren field in object poverty. Think whatever you want. Think of the worst physical and environmental circumstances. Think Trailer Park in Commerce City. Think Hesperia, where I grew up. This is the middle of the Mojave Desert. Hesperia, of course, is the Greek word for the cattle are all dead. This is the place where nothing grows. Mephibosheth is living in some obscure, worthless, barren field. And remember, the custom in those days was to 
kill the outgoing royal family. And so Mephibosheth is a man on the run. He's living in the wilderness witness protection program, away from prying eyes. He is growing up in circumstances that he doesn't want to be found. And the only person, the only person who knows his location is Ziba. And David doesn't ask how Mephibosheth's disability occurred. Hey, how did it happen? How, how did it happen that he became lame? Well, remember 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4? In 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame, his name was Mephibosheth. Here's the picture. Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. All of the brothers are dead. The nurse picks up the child and begins running for her life, hoping to save him. He trips and falls. The boy falls and both of his feet are shattered. And he's disabled for life. He's in permanent hiding. And in verse 5 it says, Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lo-Debar. Now we're not given Mephibosheth's age. Remember, his feet are shattered at the age of five. We know that he has a son because we've already read ahead in the chapter that he has a son named Micah. We also can be certain that when Mephibosheth received that knock on the door... The last thing in the world he expected was to hear from a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> no, it's a, the other Jehovah's Witness. I'm just kidding here. It, it's the other. In other words, it's the king's soldiers who come on behalf of Jehovah. What a shock. The king wants to see you. What for? I can almost guarantee you he's thought, this is it. I'm done for. I see an incredible parallel of people who are living in this world. And David's son, David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ comes knocking at their door. He comes knocking at the door of their heart. He wants to bless them. He wants to extend mercy and grace. But the people are blind and crippled and scared and frightened. And they hear the knock at the door and they ask the question, what in the world does God want with me? If I answer the call, I can almost certainly expect punishment. It could have been that Mephibosheth was living in a world where he thought, God hates me. God allowed my dad to die. God killed my grandfather. God punished my family. Everyone in my family has been killed and annihilated and I am the only one left. God hates me. But nothing could be further from the truth. God loves us. 
He sent Jesus to die for us. One of the messages of the New Testament is, guess what? You don't have to hide any longer. You don't have to stay away. He wants to take you home to his house. Mephibosheth was born into a rejected family. He experienced a fall. He couldn't walk. He was missing out in the best things in life. He lives in a place called No Harvest. (laughs) It's the same place the sinners live. It's the place where the soul can't be satisfied. He lives in the place... Where every morning you wake up and your life is empty and your heart is dark and you feel estranged from God. He lives in the place where every morning you wake up and you are hungry and you are thirsty and you are lame and you are living in a world that promises comfort and satisfaction and then it never delivers. He is living in the place of absolute darkness. And then the knock comes at the door. We go now to how grace works. Look at verse 5. Again, then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. In verse 6, now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and he prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. Now think about how this is working out. The soldiers have knocked on the door. The soldiers take him with his crutches back to the king's palace. As he enters the king's palace, Mephibosheth throws away his crutches. He throws away his crutches. He prostrates himself on the ground. He he presses his face on the king's marble floor. And he thinks this thought. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? Am I going to feel a sword on the back of my neck? And he hears a voice. Is that you, Mephibosheth? Isn't that exactly how Jesus shows up? Is that you? Is it really you? Here is your servant. Look what it says in verse 7. So David said to him, Do not fear. (laughs) Do you remember all the times in the New Testament when David's future famous son says, Do not fear? (laughs) Usually it's when you're terrified. Do not fear, for I will surely show you chesed for Jonathan your father's sake. And will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. What? Yes, Mephibosheth. Think, I want you to see the drama here. Mephibosheth goes from homeless fugitive to king's kid in a single statement. What? What? 
What? How do you go from homeless fugitive to a king's kid in a single statement? Not, wait, wait, wait. How often will I eat at your table? Every time we have a meal. If I have a table, you have a table. And if I have bread, you have bread. If I have a provision, then you have a, a provision. Now think about that. With his face on the floor, he's expecting the sword, and now he's a fully a king's kid. I read the story of Dr. Carl Menninger in, in his book called The Vital Balance, and it talks about what he calls the negative personality. This is the kind of person who says no to everything. These are troubled patients, he writes. These troubled people have never made an unsound loan. They have never voted for a liberal cause. They've never sponsored any extravagance. They cannot permit themselves the pleasure of giving, unquote. He describes them as rigid, chronically unhappy individuals, bitter insecure, suicidal. And then he illustrates it with a story of Thomas Jefferson who was with a group of companions riding horseback across the country when they came across this swollen river and a wayfarer waited until several of the party had crossed and then he hailed the president he said and asked if he would carry him across to the opposite bank. Tell me, asked one of the president's men, why did you select the president to ask this favor of? The man said, the president? I didn't know he was the president. All I knew was that on this man's face, here's what he said. All I know is that on some men's face, the answer is written, no. And on other people's face, the answer is written, yes. He has a kind of a yes face. Now, some of you may have grown up in circumstances with a mother, a father, a grandfather, a grandmother, whatever. In the world in which I grew up, you go to your dad and he says, no. My dad had a no face. And my mom had a maybe face. But my grandma always had a yes face. I loved asking my grandma for things because chances were the answer was going to be yes. Now the reason why this becomes important is people who understand grace have a yes face. People who understand grace have a yes face because Jesus has this yes face. In other words, you come to Jesus and you ask Jesus for things and Jesus has this countenance of, I want to give it to you. I want to give you freedom and I want to give you grace and I want to give you mercy and I want to give you forgiveness and I want to give you hope. David has this yes face just like his future famous son, Mephibosheth. I want to restore to you everything that has been lost because of your circumstances. But I want to give you even more than that. I don't want to just simply give you what you had coming to you. I want you to begin 
to live your life as you are a part of my forever family. And that's what verse 8 means in the the context. Then he, that is Mephibosheth, bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? How is this possible? How is this even possible? How can a lame, homeless person with nothing to offer deserve such a thing? You know the right answer, don't you? You don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. Grace, by very definition, means you don't deserve it. When John Knox, the famous Christian leader and Reformation leader, lay dying, he awoke from a terrible nightmare. He told his friends that he had just been tempted to believe that he had merited heaven and eternal blessing by the faithful discharge of his ministry. He said, blessed be God who enabled me to bead down and quench the fiery dark by suggesting to me such passages of scriptures as these. What hast thou that thou didst not receive? And by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's quoting the scripture. Not I, but the grace of God which is with me. He begins to understand something. There's no amount of Christian ministry. There's no amount of books. There's no amount of people that you can lead to God. There's no amount of things that you can do to merit the loving kindness of God. For reasons that are unexplainable, he has a profound affection for you. Can you imagine when the leaders say to David, he's lame, and David saying something like, what's this going to cost me? What's it going to cost me for the lame guy to eat at my table for the rest of his life? David doesn't even calculate the cost. He enters into the relationship and fellowship prepared to pay The cost. That's exactly what Jesus did in heaven. When he considered your circumstances and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit began to make the plan to rescue you, they considered the cost. You're going to have to be born of a virgin. You're going to have to live a perfect life. You are going to be taken and you're going to be arrested and you are going to be tortured. And during the course of the torture, they're going to suspend you between heaven and earth. They're going to press a crown of thorns into your brow and they're going to take iron Roman nails and they're going to affix you to a piece of wood and they are going to suspend you between heaven and earth and you are going to die in the most painful way imaginable. Make no mistake about it. That's exactly what the Bible says when it says he endured the pain. He was willing to obey. It's interesting to me. 
In verse 9, look what it says. And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. The possessions went somewhere. Someone else had to be displaced in order for him to receive his inheritance. And then in verse 10, you therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Here's the picture. The picture is they still get to participate in the land and all of the fruit of the land. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. And as for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Do you understand what you're reading? This is way more than guess who's coming to dinner. Now, I, I, I want you to just picture this lavish castle, castle, this lavish palace. Can you imagine? I just want you to imagine just for a moment what it would be like to go back in time and space and eat at the king's table. The dinner bell rings and all of a sudden they start coming. David, the king, comes. Amnon, his clever and witty son, comes. Then Joab, the general, comes. And he looks like a cross between Chuck Norris and Jean-Claude Van Damme. Then comes Absalom, looking every bit the movie star. Perfect features, perfect teeth, perfect everything. Today, I, today Robert Culp died. You may not know who he was, but he was somebody who I grew up with in the 60s. Um, way before... Uh, Bill Cosby became a very famous... This was what really put him on the map. Bill Cosby and Robert Culp played these two spies together. And every generation you have big, tall, athletic people. In the 50s, it was Fess Parker who just died. He was six foot six. You have these big, tall, Tom Selleck looking people. You have these movie star people. You have these people who come out and they all look like movie stars. Then Tamar, the beautiful daughter of the king... She looks perfect. And then Mephibosheth comes out. Dragging his feet. Using his crutches. He parks himself at the place marked handicapped parking. He smiles. He joins them at the dinner table. Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, He smiles and humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's sons. And the tablecloth of grace covers his feet. Isn't that good? The cloth hangs low enough to cover his disability. Because he doesn't look like a king's kid. He didn't grow up like a king's kid. Swindoll in his book, David, lists eight analogies of the story of David's grace towards Mephibosheth and God's grace towards us. He begins, number one, Mephibosheth was the son of a crown prince and the grandson of a king. Early in his life, he enjoyed uninterrupted fellowship with his father. 
His father was a prince, and his grandfather was a king. Adam, the first man, enjoyed uninterrupted fellowship with his heavenly father. Mephibosheth experienced what it would have been like to have a relationship with a king, only to lose that relationship. That's exactly what happened to Adam. He walks with God, with God in the, in, in the extravagance of a garden. And then disaster strikes. That's number two. A disaster struck the family. The nurse carrying Mephibosheth fled in fear only to trip and fall and drop the child. It left him crippled his whole life. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they fled in fear and tried to hide from God. And as a result, every human being is born spiritually an invalid, crippled by sin. And then number three, David, perhaps for reasons of keeping his promise to Jonathan and Saul, perhaps for the sheer love of a boyhood friend, demonstrates grace to his crippled son. So God, out of love for his son, Jesus Christ, and the penalty he pays on the cross, demonstrates his love to the undeserving sinner. By the way, that's you. And if for some reason you have wandered into the arena of thinking that you're a deserving sinner. Let me ask you something. Do you know how many sins it would have taken to place Jesus on the cross? Only one. It's only one. The cross of Calvary doesn't just bear one sin. And it just doesn't bear 1,000 sins or 1 million sins or 1 billion sins or 1 trillion sins. He bears the cross for each and every one of you. Think about it. That's what God is doing right now. Swindoll writes, quote, He still seeks people who are spiritually disabled, dead due to depravity, lost in trespass, lost in sin, he seeks people who are spiritually disabled, dead, hiding, broken, fearful, confused. And he sends his soldiers to knock on the door. You don't have to live your life this way anymore. You have the favor of someone of unparalleled importance and amazing resources. We have peace with God and forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life for one reason and one reason only. God shed his grace on us. And number four, Mephibosheth has nothing, deserves nothing, can repay nothing. In fact, he didn't even have to try to win the king's favor. He was hiding from the king. Isn't that true of most of us? We deserved nothing. We have nothing. We can offer God nothing. And then he finds us. I love what Swindoll writes. He asks the reader to remember what life was like before Jesus showed up. I'd invite you to do the same thing. I want you to remember a life of drugs and alcohol. I want 
you to remember a life of sexual abuse. I want you to remember a life of empty relationships and empty encounters. I want you to remember what it was like to be lost, lost, lost. And then the king sets his affection upon you. He sets his affection upon you and his grace upon you. You know, there's something truly liberating about grace. It takes away all the demands and it puts all of the response on God's shoulders. And he says to us, you're mine. I'm taking you as you are. Lord, I come with crutches. And crippled feet. That's what God does. And number five, David restores Mephibosheth from a place of barrenness to a place of honor. He takes the broken, handicapped person from hiding and where there's no pasture land and then brings him to a place of plenty right into the courtyard of the king. You can't miss the analogy. God has taken us from where we were. Think about this. God has taken us from where we were and then he places us where he is. You know, Paul writes about that in the book of Ephesians. When he asks you, he invites you to imagine yourself in heaven with Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. He restores us to a place where we once had unrestricted access, friendship and fellowship with him. And David adopts Mephibosheth into his family. And he becomes one of his sons. Even though he doesn't have the perfect hair of Absalom. Or the perfect teeth. Or the perfect build. He doesn't look the part. But make no mistake about it. He's been adopted. Accepted. In the beloved. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 2. Just like Mephibosheth, you've been chosen, you've been adopted, you've been accepted. Here's what David says, you sit at my table, you eat my food, you enjoy my company. Isn't that wonderful? That part is great, but there's a part that isn't so great. Mephibosheth's disability never disappears. He carries his crutches his whole life. His feet remain lame and atrophied and crippled. But you've got to understand something. That disability was something more than a disability. It was a reminder of David's grace. Do you realize that whatever emptiness, whatever darkness... 
whatever difficulty that you have in your life and you want it so desperately to go away. You want all of the tragedy and all of the trauma and all of the wickedness and all of the things that you grew up with. You wish that they could go away and then they stay with you your whole life. And you beg God and you plead with God and you cry out to God and you ask God to take the memories away, to take the wickedness away, to take the failure away. And God says to you exactly what he says to Paul the Apostle, my grace is sufficient for you because it is in your weakness that I'm going to perfect my strength. Mephibosheth brought a pair of crutches to his relationship with the king. Now he enjoys the luxury of the king. Again, Swindoll says it perfectly. Every time he limped from one place to the next, from one step to the next, he was reminded, I'm in this magnificent palace, enjoying the pleasures of this position because of the grace of the king and nothing else. That's the way it is with the Father. Our continual problems with sin is a continual reminder of his grace. And every time we claim that verse, every time we say, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what you're doing? You're reminding yourself that grace is still available. That's when the Lord covers your feet with the tablecloth and says, have a seat. There's a reason why I picked you. There's a reason why I placed my affection upon you. Because that's exactly what I wanted. (laughs) When Mephibosheth sat down at the table of the king, he was treated just like any other son of the king. And that's how it is now. And the way it will be throughout eternity. Again, imagine sitting down at the table. You're sitting down at the table of David's future famous son, Jesus. And there is Isaac Watts. And there's Martin Luther. And there's Tozier. And there's Calvin. And there's Wycliffe. You're breaking bread with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob with Esther and Isaiah. And there's David. The king himself. With that yes face. (laughs) And there's Mephibosheth. And he looks way, way, way more like you than you ever imagined. Is there really such a thing as too much grace? I don't think so. Can people take advantage of grace? Perhaps. John Piper has written, Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Isn't that good? Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. You know, grace becomes something so powerful And you're hurt and you're broken and you're empty 
and you're homeless and you're crippled and you pull yourself up to the table and you're chosen, adopted, and accepted. You know, unlike David's table, God's table is forever. And his provision is eternal. You probably know what I'm about to tell you. Any promise is only as good as the person who makes that promise. So what does Jesus promise you? He promises you a place at his eternal table. Now we begin to understand what the book of Revelation means when it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him. That means have fellowship with him and he with me. It's a table. A table that has bread and wine that will always satisfy you. If it's true what Piper says, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God, then all of a sudden the bondage that used to enslave you, there is a sense of freedom as you begin to understand something, that everything that you were dissatisfied with before becomes completely satisfied because of what Jesus is able to do. No wonder Paul wrote that you're saved by grace through faith. What else could you expect? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would rip the veil away and that we would be able to see grace. Lord, we know that no one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out the promise of some happiness and that promise enslaves us until we believe that God is more to be desired than life itself. But Lord, we pray that we would desire you in the same way that you desired us. In the same way that you sacrificed for us. Lord, we were hiding and we were poor and we were weak and we were lame and we were fearful and we were separated. And Lord, our king sought us out before we sought him. And our king extended kindness to us for the sake of someone else. And that the king's kindness was based on a covenant. And so, Lord, we think of the covenant that the Father made with the Son. He who has the Son has the Father, and he who doesn't have the Son does not have the Father. Lord, we pray that we would be satisfied in Jesus, that we would be content to sit at the King's table, even if we look different from everyone else who's sitting there. In Jesus' name, amen.